0: There is a video of an atheist that is making its rounds right now. This individual in the video is considering some of the biggest evils in the world as he sees them. And he highlights how he believes scripture misprioritizes those evils. For instance, he thought it strange that idolatry would rank so high in Scripture's list of sins, whereas other evils with which we contend rank so much lower. And he saw this as somehow a, an indictment on how the Bible presents its morality. As I watched that, I thought it was curious, and I began to think that there's probably many of us who don't think properly about the issue of idolatry. We, we think of idolatry perhaps as just worshiping statues or competing gods, and God doesn't want that. He wants us worshiping him alone. But, but we don't think of it as deeper than that when it is much, much deeper. In fact, I'll say this. Idolatry is the root of all sin. Idolatry is the root of all evil. You may have heard money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible quite says, right? It does warn about the love of money. But what is the love of money but idolatry? Let's consider, for instance, the individuals in our text this morning. If we were to ask the atheist to give us his evaluation of Jesus, he might say, well, Jesus was a decent fellow. At least he's a good guy. Many are willing to say this. And that his death is unwarranted. And meanwhile, the religious leaders in our text are plotting and scheming and using their offices to oppress and to secure their place of power, which is, of course, a great evil. It's sinful, and it's obviously something that is to be condemned but why do they do this? Because of idolatry. Are they worshiping God in what they're doing? <laughs> no, they are not. Well, they are worshiping something. They're worshiping themselves, actually. They're worshiping what they want out of the situation They are doing what they do because they lack any true fear of God, and they are not putting God first in the midst of their situation. This is why evil exists, is because of idolatry. And it's this way with all our sin. When we lie, when we cheat, when we steal... When we kill, when we destroy, it all comes back to an exalted sense of self and a desire to just fulfill whatever we want to do. And in that moment we become our own gods. We might even become, or we might even claim to be Christians when we do this. It is possible, just as it's possible for religious leaders to engage in this kind of action. But this is self-worship. We have to see it for what it is. It is self-worship, and it is as idolatrous as offering a bowl of rice to a statue in a Hindu temple would be. This is idolatry, and idolatry underlies all sin, it underlies all evil. And the only cure for it is repentance before the Lord and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Idolatry leads to evil. And this is what this passage demonstrates this morning. As as we read this passage, we see men who should know better contemplating murder. And they do so because of their idolatrous desires. And as we go through their murder plot, or their justification of a murder plot. We're gonna note three aspects to their plan. We'll note the drive to their plan. We'll note the determination of their plan. And then we'll note the deficiency of their plan. The deficiency of their plan. Let's let's first note, though, their drive. What, What drives their plan? Let's go back to verses 47 through 50 and consider this. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. They gathered the Sanhedrin and were saying, What are we doing for this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient. it is better for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. See the news of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead that we've been reading about here in this chapter had reached the Pharisees. And we saw that some had go had gone and reported to the Pharisees what Jesus did in the previous verse here. And the Pharisees responded by convening an emergency council meeting here. They gathered together the chief priests, which would have included the high priests, or the high priest, uh, Caiaphas here, as well as others in the high priest's family. And uh, th- this was an influential family within Jerusalem. And since Lazarus was such a prominent member of a family uh, near Jerusalem and his death was so well established, there would be no way of the Jewish leadership denying that a miracle took place. And so they had to convene this meeting in order to address what what was to be done about Jesus. And this meeting is known as the Sanhedrin. In fact, if you have a legacy standard Bible, it says there that they gathered the Sanhedrin there, or gathered the Sanhedrin together, and that is the terminology that's used in the underlying text. The Sanhedrin, Who 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 is the Sanhedrin? Well, it is the Jewish ruling body in the land. It has uh, the power to judge, to legislate, to to execute judgments. And it does all of this, of course, within the confines of what Rome has placed on it. But, But this is the ruling Jewish body of the day. As the MacArthur Study Bible notes here in Jesus' day, the 70 members of the Sanhedrin were dominated by the chief priests, and virtually all the priests were Sadducees. The Pharisees constituted an influential minority, while the Pharisees and Sadducees were often in conflict. Their mutual hatred of Jesus united them into action. And there is something about Jesus that will bring together opposing parties, of course. And so the Sanhedrin gathers together to try to figure out what are we to do about Jesus? How are we to respond to Jesus's latest miracle? They, they, they have this in their mind. They, they, they are questioning themselves. And the question that comes next may be translated differently depending on what Bibles you have. Uh, The King James Version has it as a little bit more of an honest question. What shall we do? If you have like the New International Version, it's a little bit more of a rhetorical question. What are we accomplishing? And that's a little bit more like the translation I have here, the New American Standard. What are we doing what are we doing? Not just what shall we do, but what are we doing? It's almost like we're just not doing anything. We're not accomplishing anything here. Jesus seems to be winning. And that's how they view it. They they, they view themselves as as waning in influence while Jesus is gaining influence. It's almost as though they're painting Jesus as, as engaging in this public campaign of public opinion, and he is gathering together support and they are losing support. They see a competition in their minds with Jesus. Of course, that's only because of them. Jesus was perfectly happy to have worked with them if they would have had him. But they, they look at Jesus and they say, this man is performing many signs. They, they don't even speak his name, do they? This man is performing many signs. They are just full of contempt for Jesus. But but in their contempt, they accidentally admit to the truth. He is performing miracles. And this is something that, that, that can't be denied. Jesus is actually working miracles. This isn't like some of the fake miracles that people perform today. Or it's like someone comes in and it's not something you can see. Oh, I have a headache. Oh, well then let me touch your head. Does your head still hurt? I guess not as much. Oh, look, it's a miracle. And that's not really anything you can measure or see, right? But when you have a guy who's been dead for four days coming up out of the grave, that's pretty measurable. That's pretty undeniable. And that's The kind of thing that they are contending with. They say he's working all these signs. And they knew this, they've known this for a while. And look back at John three. Remember John three? It's not been too long ago we were in John three. John 3, verse 1. There is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. That's why we call him Nick at night, right? And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Even back toward the beginning of Jesus's ministry, there was a recognition that Jesus was performing true signs, true miracles, and that must be a connection to God. Because that would be the only way to explain what Jesus is doing the people had reached a similar conclusion look now to John 7 John 7 in verse 31 John 7:31 But many of the crowd believed in him they were saying When the Christ comes, will he not perform more signs than those which this man has? Will he or he will not perform more signs than than those which this man has? Will he? And so the idea was that Jesus was performing so many signs, so many miracles that the, the Messiah, if, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, they couldn't imagine that the Messiah would be doing more than what Jesus was doing. In other words, to that's a roundabout way of saying Jesus is the Messiah. He must be. He's doing everything that we would expect that the Messiah would do. So the evidence is there, right? Right. But the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, they they will not accept Jesus. Despite the clear evidence in front of them. The undeniable evidence. And it's amazing to me, and perhaps you find it amazing too, that their opinion would be so unchanged by the raising of a man from the dead. But this just shows us how hatred for Jesus, how idolatry can harden a person in unbelief. We have to watch out for this in our souls. They, can, they continue to think about this. They, they think about uh, we're, we're, we're losing influence to Jesus. So many people are starting to think that he's the Messiah. And, and and as they think about this, they get themselves worked up, and they start to worry about what this may mean, what, what will happen. Well, first of all, what would Jesus do with that acknowledgment? Maybe he'll become political, even though he had never been that way before. As one t- t- teacher notes here, this is a curious muddle for the rulers knew that Jesus did not claim to be a political messiah and that he would not be a rival to Caesar. And yet they reason among themselves, he might try it anyway. What if he did turn his attention to revolution? One of the reasons they feared this is because that's what the people want. They want revolution. They want to be free from Rome. We can understand that. Rome was an oppressive hand on the people. So we can understand why they want revolution. But what would Rome do in response? The Romans are going to come and they're going to, they're, they're going to take away our place. They're going to take away our nation. And so the underlying their emotion or their motivations here is more emotion than just hatred for Jesus. They also are fearful of disturbing Rome. They want status quo with Rome. That is to say they don't trust the Lord with what to do with Rome. They don't trust the Lord to go out and fight for them as he's done in the past. Think about this very scripture that's in front of them, the the, the, the scripture that they would read on the Sabbath days. Let's go back to Joshua. 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 He's there right before he judges Ruth. That's just the order of books. He's not actually judging Ruth. Joshua chapter 23. Joshua 23, verses 3 through 7. We read there. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. This is after the conquest, after they have come into the land. They've seen how God has given them victory over the peoples of the land. Verse 4 See, I have a portion to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes, with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun, the Lord your God, he will thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you. And you will possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Be very firm, then, to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you will not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down, bow down to them. They are supposed to have faith that the Lord is going to go and fight for them. That this is the land that God has given to them. And if they would have had that faith when Jesus was walking the earth, I, I can't imagine how differently history would have unfolded. But unfortunately, that is not the way of things. They rejected what the Lord has told them. They rejected the Lord's king, who he would install on Zion. Psalm 2. They reject the king who would break the nations. Ironically, then, they, they do engage in idolatry as they claim to be holding on to the oracles of God. They, they, they worship a Lord of their own making. They don't worship the Lord of Scripture who has sent them this Messiah. And they would find no forgiveness of sins unless they repent before this Messiah, because that's actually why he came, was for the forgiveness of sins. Because they are not turning to him, they are idolaters. That's hard to see. That's hard to say in this text. We say, oh, they're worshiping the same God we are. By name, yes. But in practice, no. And that's something we have to see, not so that we can see this in others so much, but so that we can see it in ourselves. It is possible to be a Christian in name and to be an idolater. And we have to recognize that and root that out if we ever find that inside of ourselves. How do we know they are idolaters? Well, look at what they feared. They feared the loss of, first, our place. Our place. Oh, your place. Yeah, they actually emphasize the the personal pronoun there. Our place. You say, what is their place? Well, it could be referring to Jerusalem, where they ruled, or to the temple, the focus of their authority. They, they, They are worried about losing authority, influence, position. And it's funny because they put that first, and then our nation, you would think as just... Patriot, patriotic men, they would, they would be afraid of the Romans coming in and destroying their nation, maybe destroying their people. They, they put nation second though. It's more about our place, our place and our nation. They put the possessive on the nation too. Interesting. They feared Rome for the same reason they hated Jesus. They valued their influence and power above all else. These are the true gods they served. And so the drive to their plan was an, an, an idolatrous desire to maintain control. And none had a deeper drive than the high priestly clan of that day. And with that, we turn to Caiaphas, who was the high priest in that year. What does that mean? As we've already noted, the whole family wielded control. Uh, There was uh, Caiaphas' father-in-law, for instance, Annas, who had also been high priest, but was not anymore. And that's a little strange because typically in the Old Testament, what we see with the law of Moses, what we see through the Old Testament and what should have been the practice was that once a person became high priest, he was appointed such for life. You don't retire from being high priest. But here's Annas, he's not high priest anymore. What happened? So we we encounter him later in John 18, 13, where he questions Jesus. So what happened? Well, the Romans came in and they they decided they didn't like what Annas was doing. They decided they didn't like the fact that so much power was concentrated in one man. And they said, okay, Annas is out, someone else is in. And they said, okay, well, Caiaphas who happens to be Annas' son-in-law. And so you can kind of see, oh, we're keeping it all in the family. That's why this clan, this family, was so powerful, so influential. And that's why John points out that he was high priest for that year because he was appointed high priest by the Roman prefect Valerius Gratus in the year 18. And he served for about 18 years, if I'm not mistaken. And so he was high priest for that year. (laughs) which kind of highlights how, how much the system was no longer reflecting God's order. And it was highlighting that it would be under Caiaphas's leadership, Caiaphas's leadership, that Jesus would be murdered. He was high priest of that year. He was high priest of the year of our Lord's murder. this is the man or one of the men to be blamed. Caiaphas, as you might imagine, was not perhaps the godliest individual. And he also wasn't the friendliest (laughs) because he says to them here, you know nothing at all. Now, it's, as many other people have pointed out there, that's not exactly from the Dale Carnegie uh, rule book, there, or guidebook, how to win friends and influence people. In fact, if we were to translate it a little bit more literally, y'all do not know nothing. Now that's not typically considered good English, but in the Greek they they have a rule that we don't have in English where you have a double negative actually intensifying the statement. You do not know nothing. And so so there's almost this emphasis that's being placed, and the y'all there is emphasized as well in the original language. And so it, it, this is this is perhaps a very contemptuous sweeping condemnation of the entire Sanhedrin. Caiaphas was not exactly a, a genial kind of fellow. He was rude. And he speaks with such disgust. Why? Because of his strive for power. What is the God he's worshiping? Himself, that's right. And within the realms of his wisdom, he has concocted what he believes is the only logical course of action The Sanhedrin has been failing because it has failed to commit to the murder of Jesus. And that's what he says next. He continues, You do not take into account that it is expedient or better for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish if you are unclear as to how a religious leader of all people could, could get to this point, just remember the expression, the ends justify the means. This is his thinking. And you can, you can see what kind of person he is since he's employing that kind of thinking. The ends justify the means. We need to save the whole nation by killing this innocent fellow, that's his thinking. Of course, that ignores scripture. What does proverbs seventeen fifteen say? It says this, He who justifies the wicked, and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike. Are an abomination to the Lord. Caiaphas isn't concerned with that. He's using his faulty reasoning, his idolatrous reasoning, to make the best political decision for him, for the rest of the Sanhedrin, and for the nation. And so, what does he say? He says that that this man must be sacrificed. You know this this word when it says he 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 dies for the people. For it, it, it's such a such a uh, simple word. For for it can mean a lot of different things. And in the case of the underlying Greek word, who uh, bear? If you're interested, it's in behalf of. Or instead of, oftentimes, in behalf of, or instead of. It, this man, according to Caiaphas, is to die on the behalf of, or in behalf of, or instead of the people. As a priest, he is using language of substitution, which is the exact same language that is used of all the other sacrifices. Caiaphas says Jesus will be a sacrifice like the many hundreds of thousands of sacrifices that they make every year. He will be one to keep the nation from perishing That's the darkness he proposes. That's the plan that's driven by his desires. So that's what he suggests. Now, there is a great irony here. And I hope it's not missed on you. Jesus did come to die as a sacrifice. (laughs) And that's... Where we turn next, so let's, let's consider the determination of their plan, the determination of their plan, verses 51 and 53, 51 through 53. Now, he, Caiaphas, did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only but in order that he might gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So John notes that Caiaphas did not understand that God was granting him these words. Proverbs 19:21 says this: Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. There's a saying that goes along with that. Man proposes, God disposes. Caiaphas is speaking, and he is speaking what he thinks is natural. He's talking about sacrificing Jesus to save them politically. What he's unaware of is that the Lord is working sinlessly through his machinations to accomplish his own divine purposes and making Christ the sacrifice for sin. And this is how the Lord works. He works behind the scenes, and he works sinlessly, even through sinful people. And I want you to be clear on that. God is is not causing Caiaphas to sin. God is not the author of sin. Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin, they are accountable for their own sinful choices. But given that they are making those sinful choices, the Lord is going to work through that to accomplish his better purposes. Just like they said, or just like Joseph said to his brothers in Egypt, right? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. They may be hard-hearted in their ways, but God is going to use this as a way to demonstrate his grace. And God is glorified in working in these kinds of ways. They had a natural sinful desire, but the Lord was the true determination behind their plan. How do we know that Verse 51 says this. Now he did not say this of his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. Because Caiaphas was in the position he was in, as dishonoring as Caiaphas was to that position, the Lord still spoke through him and he received divine prophecy. Of course, Caiaphas didn't know it. which is fascinating. God can still work through sinful people, even when the sinful people don't know it. He spoke a word that he determined to blaspheme Jesus, and yet God determined the word to proclaim the work of Christ. What is the work of Christ that we see here? Well, it is a work of substitution. And there is an irony here that the that the. The high priest is using language of substitution, of sacrifice, and not realizing that this must be to fulfill what has been predicted of the Messiah. And let's just go back for a moment to Isaiah chapter 53 and consider the suffering servant that Isaiah predicted the Messiah would be. Isaiah 53. And there's much that we could say there. It really begins in verse or chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. Uh, the servant who will prosper, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Look, look, look down to 53, eight though. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. (laughs) We're reading about the oppression and judgment even now. And as for his generation, the people who are in that era, the people who are leaders of that generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, he would be killed for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due it wasn't Caiaphas who considered that. And it wasn't the gathered Sanhedrin. Now, there would be some other Pharisees who would come to believe in Jesus, of course. You know, but, but we're not talking about them uh, at the moment. We're talking about the whole, the, the, the council as a whole. They, they don't consider this. Some would come to consider it. But this is why he came. He came to die for the people to whom the stroke was due. He came to save the nation. The the, the whole of the Sanhedrin, they, they, they seem to be ignorant of this connection. But Jesus would come and die as a substitute, as an atonement. And the Bible uses very clear language of substitution. That he would die for believers. And let's, let's just look at, at these places here together. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5. Because it's so important that we see this for the sake of our own souls. 2 Corinthians 5.21 <clears throat> He, God, he made him Jesus. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. you get that? Jesus was perfect, he knew no sin, and yet he would become Sin on our behalf so that we would become something else. We would become the righteousness of God in him. He becomes sin on our behalf. Do you see that? He becomes a substitute for us. He becomes sin on our behalf. Since we've gone to the right, let's keep going to the right and consider Peter's words. First, Peter. which comes right before 2nd Peter. I love how that works out. 1st Peter chapter 2 verse 24. And we read there, he himself bore whose sins our sins in his body on the cross. See, he's a substitute. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. See, this is the substitution that's taken place. And the substitution is for specific people. This is what Jesus himself said. We're in John 11. Let's go back one chapter, John chapter 10. John chapter 10 to verse 11. One of the I am statements. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he continues to, to, to say this that, that, that he has sheep and he will lay down his life for them. Not for sheep of another fold. He's laying down his life for his sheep. His sheep. Let's look now to chapter 15. Jesus doesn't just describe us as sheep. It's fitting when we can if we consider him to be a shepherd, then it's fitting for us to be described as sheep. That's a that's a good image there. But he uses other images. John 15, 13. This is uh, greater love has no one than this. That one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What what is Jesus about to do in John 15? John 16, 17, 18, we get to the crucifixion. He's about to lay down his life for his friends. For his friends. So we're his sheep, we're his friends who does he lay down his life for? For us. For us. And so substitution is for specific people. It's for believers. I understand there are folks who have taught this a little bit differently, and they say, well, you know, Jesus just kind of died up there. He didn't really die for anyone in particular. He just kind of died for the faceless masses out there and, and, You know, if you come to believe in him, then his death is for you. But that's not the kind of description that scripture provides for us. Scripture tells us that he died for the people, for the nation, and not just for believers in Israel, but also for all of the children of God so that he might gather together all of the children of God. Who are the children of God? Are the children of God, are the children of God just everybody? Is, is everybody a child of God? Let me put it that way. Now, there are some, we could go to some churches down the road, I'm sure, if I were to, if I were to ask that question, some other churches, they would say, yes, we are all God's children. And it's a wonderful thought. Let me say this. I do believe we are all made in God's image. We all bear God's image. We are all brothers and sisters in Adam and Eve. But to be classified as God's children, that requires something else. Let's go back to John 1 for a moment. John 1. John 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them, not to everybody, but to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Who are those people? Well, even to those, that's what that means. We're we're explaining who those people are. Even to those who believe in his name. And so we're talking about believers, believers in Jesus Christ specifically. They are the ones who are given the right to become the children of God. Who were born... Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We can't work our way into the kingdom. We can't be uh, just simply born to be born to Christian parents and we're just in the kingdom. it's, It's not of the flesh. It's not of effort. It's not by works. It's not by blood. It's not by the will of man. You can't just simply wish it hard and it becomes true. Like, I really, really genuinely believe this. And it just becomes a thing. No, it's only in Jesus Christ. That's where we have to put our faith and trust. It's only in him that we become believers. And so that's the substitutionary atonement. It is for those who put their faith and trust in Christ specifically, Specifically, and, and this is what John means when he talks about the world, too. He, he, when, he is, when he is addressing this, he's saying it's not just the nation. It's also all of God's children who are scattered abroad. Who are God's children scattered abroad? The Gentiles. The Gentiles who had come to faith and come to believe. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said, not this flock only. I have others who are not of this fold, and I'm going to bring them in, and they're going to be one fold. This is what Paul highlights in Ephesians chapter two that that there are Jews and that there are Gentiles, and Christ has torn down the dividing wall, and He has taken the two and He has brought them into one, and He has made them one people and one flesh. We we in Him we are now neither Jew nor Gentile. We are just in Christ. Amen. When John says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, he is saying it's not just to the Jews. It's to the Gentiles too. When John is writing in, in, in 1 John, and he says it's not to us only, it's also to the whole world, he, that's what he's saying, it's not to the Jews only, it's also to the whole world. This is how he's bringing it together. God is gathering together in Christ all of God's children. And it is through the substitutionary atonement that our sins are paid for. And it's in Christ that we can become the children of God. Now, that's the determination behind their plan. Of course, they have their determination as well, but a fleshly one. And how do they respond? Well, they they are going to plot from that day on. They are going to plot the murder of Jesus. They're they're planning together to kill him. Why? Because God has so ordained it to be. God has said, "Okay, their hearts are hard. I'm going to use that just as Pharaoh's heart is hard. And he used Pharaoh and Egypt to display his wonders and his glories. The hearts of the Sanhedrin are all hard. And God is going to use that to display his glory and salvation. As he brings people out of spiritual bondage and spiritual darkness. And so they agree together to plot the murder and, and, and and they just have left. Okay. When, when are we going to do it? Mark 14, one and two, I'll just read it to you. Now, the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him for they were saying not during the festival. Otherwise there will be a riot of the people. Matthew 26, four, we read that they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. They're trying to figure it out. How are we going to get him? How are we going to seize him? So that we don't face any opposition and so that we can take him out. They are determined to kill him because they are committed to their idolatrous ways. But let's note finally here, and we won't spend as much time on this, the deficiency of their plan. Verses 54 through 57. and Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover, the Jews, was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus, and they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feasts at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders, that if anyone knew where he was he was to report it so that they might seize him jesus is not surprised by the plots of man he knew he knew back in chapter 7 verse 1 he knows now and he just simply withdraws he he goes to the countryside to to this to this town. We're not exactly certain what what town this is. Uh, one possibility is Ephron, which is a city that's mentioned in the Old Testament. It's near Bethel. It's about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. And that provides enough buffer between Jesus and the Sanhedrin, as he decides. Uh, you know, you, you might say, that doesn't sound like very far. If you're so determined to murder someone, 12 miles even on foot doesn't seem like it's a big distance. We could cover that and we could go get them. But this is just how ineffectual they are, how how deficient they are. It, <laughs> he can just go 12 miles away, and that's enough to thwart their plans. They don't know what to do now. Okay, well, I guess we gotta wait till he comes to the to, to the feast. Well, why is distance needed at all? It's not like he's running. Jesus supernaturally knows their intentions and he can raise the dead. (laughs) I don't think he's afraid of them. But he does have a specific timetable to follow and he's not going to allow them to rush it. Plus, he wants to spend time with his disciples. He's going to spend some final days with them. With his friends, away from his enemies. He has a little bit more ministry work to do. Not that the Sanhedrin's going to benefit from it, but he's going to spend some time with his friends before he then allows them to spring their trap. <laughs> they think they're so clever. So they wonder. The people wonder as they as they're gathering into Jerusalem, they 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 begin to come in uh for for their purification. They wonder uh is Jesus going to show up this time? Maybe the Sanhedrin has scared uh Jesus away. He's not going to come. They're wondering about it and there are a lot of people coming uh, just just to be clear here when 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 the Passover was 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 growing near, people would start migrating to Jerusalem by the thousands. In fact, estimates are that there would be anywhere between 85,000 to 125,000 pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem during those days. That's quite a lot. And they are all wondering, is Jesus coming? Why are they wondering that? Because we read that the chief priests had issued orders. They had issued orders. If anyone knew where Jesus was, report it. If you've seen something, say something, right? This is tyrannical government 101, right? They're trying to get the people to report on him. It's it's, it's hilarious because the Sanhedrin knows that the people have turned to Jesus, and yet they are relying on the people to report on Jesus. This is, again, just how deficient, how, how ineffectual they are. They, they have no power unless the people give it to them. And their whole plan for seizing Jesus rests on someone, somewhere, who is willing to sell Jesus out. Jesus has to basically give them that. And there just happens to be a disciple who we will talk a little bit more about next time. Who is already thinking about selling Jesus out. And yet Jesus doesn't even allow him to go and do what he has planned until Jesus finally gives him leave and says what you are doing. Do it quickly. This is all within Jesus's control. And he will allow it to happen only at the proper moment. But I hope you understand as we are going through this, that idolatry is underlying all of your own sins. My sins, your sins. It is at the root of all evil. Whether it be something great or small and impact to others, it's idolatry that that is that is underlying it all. That's why it's so important to see that and see that, Okay, I need to be worshiping God. I need to keep God first in my life. That's why the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Because if you do not keep God first in your love and your affections in your life, then you are going to be turning to idolatry and you are going to fall into sin. It starts with that. But if you find that you have not kept God first in your life, and that is what's led to so many of the sins that you have committed this past year, and perhaps throughout your life, and yes, throughout your life, Know this that there is forgiveness available in Jesus Christ. This is why he came. We've just read that. He came to fulfill that prophecy so that he could so that he could uh, be that sacrifice for us, so that he could be that substitution. If you have never put your faith and trust in him, I hope that you will call upon him and be saved. As you're going to find, if that is the case, that that not only Jesus has died in your place, but that in the mystery of God, God's been working all of this time to gather you in. I hope that the rest of you will, will praise God for his providence and for his grace, which comes in spite of our sins and in spite of ourselves.